Welcome to The Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Friday, February 16th, 2024. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. My guest today for the 51st episode of The Hale Report is Edward J. Pinto, who is Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. He serves as co-director at the AEI Housing Center. Welcome, Ed. Thank you, Lyric. It's a pleasure to be joining you. Thank you. I think we first met in Maine, didn't we, at Camp Kotick? Am I correct in that? Yes. Uh, yeah, we both live in Sarasota, uh, David and, and I. That's how I met David. I see. Okay. Well, ever since then, um, you've been my go-to guy for anything related to housing. And I think it's a subject that interests just about everybody, not just economists. Many people in our audience that are financial types, but um, everybody has that personal interest in where they live. So to introduce you to my guest, Ed began his career in the Midwest. He graduated from the University of Illinois near Chicago and then earned his law degree at the University of Indiana. Before joining AEI, he was executive vice president and chief credit officer for Fannie Mae until the late 1980s. Today, he's a frequent interviewee on radio and television and often testifies before Congress. His writings have been published widely. In addition, he oversees the monthly publication of the AEI Housing Market Indicators. Ed, I noticed that your first job was at the, I think, the Michigan Housing Authority, and you were there, you served as their counsel there. And did this job mark the beginning of your interest in housing as a sector, or how did this begin? Well, it, it actually uh, predates that a little bit. I, I went to law school at Indiana University, and um, I had an interest in some housing issues, even coming out of uh, undergrad at the University of Illinois. And so when I got to Indiana University uh, in law school, I started working on uh, uh, landlord-tenant matters and actually wrote a landlord-tenant ordinance that got passed by the city of Bloomington uh, in 1972. Uh, and that was um, uh, during my uh, freshman year in law school. And uh, so I was interested in housing. Uh, and then when it came time to look for jobs, uh, the job uh, as an attorney at the Michigan State Housing Development Authority uh, came up. And uh, my wife, uh, Joan, who's also an attorney, um, we, we ended up, whoever got a job first, uh, we'd go there and then the other would get a job to follow. So I got uh, the job at Michigan Housing and, and my wife got a job in the city attorney's office of uh, Lansing. And that really began my career uh, in housing, but I very quickly within a year or two, got bored of just the regular legal work, got more interested in policy matters. And I was fortunate enough to become named, to be named uh, general counsel after about two and a half years. Um, so I was quite young and, and, but I had that uh, privilege and opportunity. And that really opened up, you know, policy matters um, because I, I had a staff to do the, the regular work and I could sort of, you know, do what I wanted to in, in policy matters. Oh, wonderful. You know, I was thinking as you were talking about the, you know, different government entities that exist that regulate housing at different levels, that you're kind of an ideal person to explain the interplay, the tapestry of housing regulation. Um, it, could you give us a quick tour of how that works in the United States? So the United States has, uh, under the Constitution, 
the uh, Bill of Rights, the uh, Ten Amendments. Um, the Tenth Amendment basically lays out, um, and to some extent, the separation of powers between the sovereign federal government, which is a sovereign, um, and the states back then 13, now 50 sovereign states. And the Tenth Amendment talks about um, the powers that aren't enumerated in the Constitution as uh, being in the purview of the federal government are left to uh, the citizens and to the states. And so the police power, as it's known, uh, which ranges from things like police forces, uh, crimes, murder, theft, you name it, uh, all the way down to uh, public health issues, which are exercises of the police power, uh, eviction rules uh, and zoning are all exercises of the police power. And those are generally recognized to be in the purview of state government. Uh, local governments aren't mentioned in our constitution. They are creatures of state government. And so it's up to the state government to delegate to local governments if they choose the exercise of this police power, be it murders or um, zoning, all the way from one extreme to zoning. And so the federal government does, in general, not get involved with land use matters in general. Um, uh, there's a huge exception to that that I'll come back to. And it's generally viewed as the purview of state governments and local governments. The big exception is that in 1922, the federal government, under the auspices of the Department of Commerce, under Herbert Hoover, who was Secretary of Commerce at the time, um, and was an engineer, and very much uh, a small p progressive uh, that thought that the government could solve virtually any problem if it just applied the right principles and theory to it and programs, came up with the idea of promoting zoning at the state and local level. He appointed a commission, uh, which uh, the task of the commission, uh, a national commission, was to come up with a model zoning uh, statute for the states, which would then get pushed out to the cities. Uh, that um, uh, it did not have the force of law. Congress never passed anything around it, uh, but it was just uh, through the bully pulpit of the federal government uh, pushed out to the states and, and the states pushed it locally. It was immensely successful uh, in terms of adoption by uh, state and local governments, but it had a, um, a very nefarious purpose. Uh, the purpose was uh, in 1916, the Supreme Court had said you couldn't use zoning uh, based on race, uh, that that was a violation of the 14th Amendment. And so municipalities and states were looking for a way to zone and keep minorities in that time, basically uh, blacks and uh, ethnic groups that they didn't agree with, Jews, Italian, Southern Italians to be distinguished from Northern Italians, uh, Eastern Russians, et cetera, Poles out of neighborhoods. And they stumbled on the way to do it was zoning, which was an economic structure. If they could make the price of housing just enough more expensive, not a huge amount more, but just enough more expensive that these groups they didn't want buying in these neighborhoods couldn't afford it all of a sudden. So, and they succeeded beyond their wildest expectations. The, it was well known at the time, we're talking 1922, that um, if you built a single family detached house, it would you know, sell for or rent for a certain amount roughly. Uh, it was also known that if you required more land, and set setbacks and, and side yards and larger structures, that would also add to the cost. Uh, that was viewed as a positive because it would keep 
these, quote, undesirables, close quote, out of these neighborhoods during the Roaring Twenties, uh, as they became known. Um, and it was also well known that building uh, duplexes, uh, accessory dwelling units, small townhouses, uh, triplexes, small apartment buildings were all less expensive than a single family detached house in the same neighborhood. That's fascinating. And in terms of the history of that, I did not know that. Uh, it is an tr- unbelievable history. And in 1920, if you um, were looking at a neighborhood, and you can still see these neighborhoods today, they were largely called trolley car suburbs. Uh, they had a trolley car running down the center of of the main street. And then there were uh, housing around it, commercial, and then housing around that. And the housing was of all different types and stripes and sizes. And people of all different incomes would live in them, uh, ranging from, you know, the the wealthy owners of property and, and the shop, the stores and all of that down to the school teachers and the people that, you know, the policemen on the beat and all of that. And, um, and, and so the, all of that was changed with the zoning structure that basically said you could create a zone that was exclusively single family detached. And that was a legal use of the police power. That was a real a question uh, that came up before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1926 uh, in a case uh, of Euclid uh, versus Ambler Realty. Ambler Realty wanted to build an industrial uh, uh, building um, and the land had been zoned so it could not uh, allow industrial. Uh, and they said that was a taking of property rights under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and under the 14th Due Process Clause, and therefore that was uh, uh, verboten. Uh, the district court agreed with Ambler Realty, but the Supreme Court, based in part on the Commerce Department's enabling draft, their, their draft enabling statute, said, oh no, this is okay. And But that was, there's a saying in law school, you're, you learned right at the beginning, bad cases make bad law. So you now are pitting a noxious industrial facility versus residential. And of course, the residential won out at the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, within two years, other courts, and this was embedded in the 1922 uh, statute, the uh, 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 model statute, that you could create a zone of just single family detached to the exclusion of duplexes, for example. Well, duplexes were considered perfectly normal in residential areas, but they were less expensive and that was what they were trying to stop. And so these courts, not the Supreme Court, but very soon blessed keeping out even duplexes. And that led to what we now call exclusionary zoning. So something like 75% of all the residential property in the United States is zoned single family detached to the exclusion of every other type of housing. Well, all these kind of the zoning and here in Chicago, for example, all of this creates also a a stream of revenue for local governments and a method to, you know, control um, their local destiny. And I don't think that they'll ever give that up very easily. Ironically, we can show that the stream of revenue is tamped down by exclusionary zoning because if you build uh, in Palisades Park, New Jersey is where uh, the research that I grew up there. And it's where I first stumbled on this idea that um, 
the zoning law in Palisades Park happened, I didn't, it took me a while to find this out, happened to allow from 1939 on t- one or two units on a property, just your choice, the builder's choice, the owner's choice. That's unusual. The vast majority of places I said were just one unit, single family detached. You couldn't even build a townhouse. Uh, that was illegal, uh, much less a, a duplex. And But Palisades Park allowed that. And so when it developed, it had some two-family houses. I now recall that, oh, yeah, my best friend lived in a two-family house a block away. And so, you know, that was sort of there. But it, but most of the houses were single-family detached. But over time, the this is a mile from New York City, Manhattan, George Washington Bridge. Over time, uh, land prices went up. Um, housing was scarce. And so the prices were going up rapidly. Land prices were going up rapidly. And all of a sudden, builders realized, well, wait a minute. Uh, the highest and best use for this 40 or 50 year old house that was built in the 1920s in 1989 was not as a single family detached house that was 50 or 60 years old. That might be 1400 square feet. It was as a duplex side by side, each one of which could be 2100 square feet. And um, that was actually the higher and better use. Um, And so you could tear down the old house, the house I grew up in, Uh, was torn down and replaced with one of these duplexes. And over time, more than half of Palisades Park's single-family detached structures were um, replaced with duplexes. So they got more property taxes probably that way. And and the property taxes went up tremendously. The property tax rate went down. And the commercial area, remember that trolley car suburb? uh, Well, the trolley car was long gone, but the commercial strip um, that the trolley car had uh, created uh, was still there. And now those shops and restaurants had 50 to 60% more residents within the same walking distance as had been the case 20 or 30 years before. So the population of Palisades Park went from about 12,000 when I lived there to 21,000 today. And it was all done with just one thing, duplexes. That tells you the power of duplexes. Now, that isn't the be-all and end-all. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, so I'll come back to it. Right. The, the, that isn't the be-all and end-all. What's happening at Palisades Park today is that a duplex, given uh, values again rising even further, the highest and best use is no longer a duplex. You would really need to go to a tri- Multifamily. Or, or mm-hmm. a townhouse is usually the, the mm-hmm. thing. So three or four townhouses on that lot. But those are not legal in Palisades Park. And so they're starting to see uh, the decline in the, the duplexes are getting bigger and more op- opulent because, again, the builders have to pack as much as they legally can because they're following hmm. what the law says they can build. Right. So, it, you know, it's, it's a great example of far-reaching consequences on people's daily lives of housing policy, an incredible example of it. And I'm thinking about what, you know, you're you're well known for your thoughts about the 2008 housing debacle and what happened there. And I think most people look at that as the result of speculation or banks and so forth. But I think what you've written is too, I mean, the Bush administration very clearly uh, wanted people to be able to afford housing. Was that a policy error as well? Because it led to borrowing that was not really justifiable based upon incomes. And then we had a crash that was global in its ramifications. So the story actually starts in 1991 okay. under Bush one. Okay, I didn't know that. With the passage of 
You have to hold on to your wallet when Congress calls something the Safety and Soundness Act. <laughs> you know it's going to be unsafe and unsound when Congress calls it that. And that was the name of it. It was called the uh, Federal Enterprise, meaning Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, Safety and Soundness Act. And there was nothing safe and nothing sound about it. Buried in the act, it was actually the, the, the main part of the act, was Fannie and Freddie had to start competing with the Federal Housing Administration, which was the government's subprime lender of choice. And Fannie and Freddie, I had been chief credit officer at Fannie Mae up until 1989. And if you had said to me in 1989, Ed, I want you to compete with FHA, I would have thought you were crazy. Why in the world would we compete with FHA? Their loans are so risky, uh, you know, that, that is outside of our purview. We shouldn't be competing with another government entity in the first place. Um, why would we do that? Well, Congress decided that Fannie and Freddie, through what were called affordable housing mandates, had to compete based on the income of the borrowers with um, FHA. And that also put them in direct competition with the private sector uh, in the subprime space. And Fannie and Freddie were massive uh, and kept growing and growing during the 90s. This got uh, incorporated by the Clinton administration, which, uh, as I said, that Safety and Soundness Act pass, passes in 1991. Clinton administration comes in in January 93, and by 94, they put in place the National Home Ownership Strategy, which had 100, 100 different strategies. I'm going to make round numbers. 85 of them were supply-based, and 15 were demand-based. As And this is one of the problems that's happened with the federal government for decades and decades, since the 1930s. The federal government is very good at promoting demand they're very poor at promoting supply. And so of those 15 supply, uh, excuse me, demand-based uh, provisions out of the 100, all of them got adopted. Of the 85 supply, virtually none of them got adopted. They included things that we'll be talking about here, zoning changes. None of those got adopted. And so they were pushing on demand, but the supply was growing, but it couldn't possibly grow fast enough, which is why we ended up, as they loosened credit, they brought more and more people into um, the housing market that really weren't qualified, but that also drove prices up. That continued through the 90s. By the uh, early aught years, things were really going, and then the Fed got into the act and decided that it would really lower interest rates. So now you have what I call both pedals to, are going to the metal. You've got the federal government through Fannie, Freddie, FHA, really pushing risky lending, uh, which Fannie, Freddie certainly did, as did FHA. Um, and you had the Fed lowering interest rates, which then promoted a lot of um, interest-only lending, a lot of arms, but a lot of really uh, risky fixed rate. Then the what you were talking about with the Bush 2 starts coming in after the, um, uh, the, the Clinton administration. But the last thing the Clinton administration did the week before election day in 2000, that contested election, the week before they raised the uh, affordable housing limits tremendously uh, from, don't remember the exact numbers, from let's say 42% had to be low and very low income to 50%. That was a huge increase. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was untenable at the time, but they put it in place. 
the Bush administration, uh, Bush two in 1980, in 2004 or 2005, one of those years, they increased it even further. That was because they got into a real argument with Fannie Mae. They thought they had a deal with Fannie Mae to raise the capital requirements on Fannie Mae. And then as I understand it, Fannie Mae reneged and they said, okay, we're going to raise the affordable housing goals even further. And that was just pouring more gasoline on this fire. But you could see this fire started in the early 90s. Um, but it, and, and I actually asked the, the architect um, for the Clinton administration of that uh, home ownership strategy. And Bill Clinton famously said before the National Association of Realtors uh, in, I believe, 1993 or 1994, the beauty of the National Home Ownership Strategy will never cost the taxpayers one red cent, mm -hmm. quote. Mm -hmm. And of course, it cost the taxpayers not only hundreds of billions of dollars to bail out Fannie and Freddie, but almost tank the entire world market, exactly. financial market, exactly. untold mm -hmm. damage to individuals with, with millions and millions and millions of foreclosures. And so Bill Clinton made that statement. And I asked one of the architects, well, how in the world did they get into this in 1994, 1995, when they knew the market was already starting to take off? And this person was an expert in this area, and he knew that if, if you had a tight a tightening market, that was the, the last thing you, want, you should be doing is loosening credit. He said, Ed, you don't understand. When we started thinking about this, it was right before the election in 92. By the time we got it done, it was 1995. The market had shifted, but it was, we were already committed to it, and so we released it. And so they released it just when the market was getting ready to take off, and it was, again, adding uh, uh, gasoline to what became a fire. And then the Fed added more gasoline in 2003. Well, that really, you know, it jives with what you've been saying, which is that um, the market failures are really policy failures. And right now we are facing an affordability issue. We're facing shortages of housing as well. And, you know, the CPI numbers uh, on Friday showed the increase percentage of costs that uh, people have to, you know, expenses for housing and that's affecting the economy as well. So uh, what what do you think right now, looking at where we are today, we're, it seems like we're back, you know, the housing prices, of course, crashed during 2008 and 2009, but now they're up again and there's a shortage. How did all this happen? Well, uh, great question. It happened roughly because of three things. Number one, uh, the housing market crashed in uh, 2007, 2008. It hit bottom in terms of price declines in about 2011. It was a long lasting uh, crash. Um, people were still being foreclosed upon even after that. Um, and then prices started coming back uh, in 2012. That happens to be the time when the data that we use for much of our analysis starts in 2012. So we roughly know what happened before that, but we have really good data from 2012 on. And so we've been tracking house price appreciation you know, ever since uh, 2012. And house price appreciation was going up fairly smartly uh, during the whole period up until the beginning of 2020, which is right before the pandemic. And uh, it was pretty much, we call it, we were tracking the boom, the housing boom, as we called it, from 2013 on. We started calling it a boom in 2013. 
Now, it wasn't as excessive as what happened in the aught years, but it was clearly a boom. But it, but inflation was very low, so relatively speaking, um, it, it was a pretty strong boom. Then, um, but the the uh, Fed during this entire period is largely exercising a combination of interest rate repression, keep interest rates low at the front end through the federal open markets rate, and also through what's known as quantitative easing, which is buy U.S. treasuries and buy uh, uh, Fannie, Freddie, Ginny mortgage-backed securities. They started buying those in 2008, and then uh, it was fun while it lasted. They bought quite a bit. Then they started sloughing off and, and, and stopped buying and let it run off, but they never could get back down to the trillion dollar level they'd started with in 2008. They were always way beyond that. And then right around the time, it actually started a little bit before, right around the time of the pandemic, they were back into quantitative easing. They eventually grew that portfolio that the Fed has to $9 trillion. And that basically set off two things. One is deficit spending was free because the Fed would buy trillions of dollars of debt, both uh, treasury debt and mortgage-backed securities debt, that yielded 2%, 3%, pick a number. Um, they funded it with money that basically cost nothing. Uh, it was funded out of the reserves of banks that they paid very little on. And then they remitted the difference, which was a huge amount of money every year to, to, uh, to the treasury. So Congress was in the enviable position. They could sell a trillion dollars of debt, have the trillion dollars of debt bought by the Fed at this spread. Um, and so for every trillion dollars, the Fed would earn uh, 100, called 150, two, called 200 basis points. Well, 2% on a trillion dollars is $20 billion. And so the Fed would return $20 billion for every trillion. Remember, they ended up holding $9 trillion. Um, and so that's 180 billion dollars. Uh, so they would return this money every year. Uh, and then Congress, in effect, paid virtually nothing. There was no impact on the budget. We're paying, we're seeing the result of that today as interest rates are much higher. So that was one issue. The other issue was coming out of the financial crisis, the home building industry decimated is a term from the Romans, meaning one in 10. The, the housing industry was almost destroyed. Uh, that the house price had gone up. When house prices go up, and this is a very important point, if they go up faster than the cost of building, it's really the land that's going up in price. And that's actually was the speculative bubble that was created in the aught years in the, in the early 2000s, is the price of land was going up. And we use the example in Phoenix. Uh, uh, this is a real example in Phoenix. If you were looking at the lower end of the Phoenix market, a house in 2000 might have sold for $100,000. The structure might have been 80,000 and the land might have been 20,000. So that would have land as 20% of the total package. By 2007, that same house, not the different house, that identical house was selling for $400,000. Well, the value of the structure, it was the same structure. So we're going to be generous and say that went up to from 80 to 100. Now, that assumes some increase and normally houses depreciate, not appreciate in terms of the structure, but let's assume it went to 100,000. Well, that means the land is now worth 300,000. Well, if the land's worth 300,000, that means the land share is now 300,000 out of 400,000 or 75%. But that $20,000 value went to 300, that was a 15 times 
increase in the value of the land. And that is exactly what happened. When house prices then collapsed, the land values went back to where they started or even below. The value of the structure didn't change much. It was still the same old structure. So it was the land that goes up and goes down. And the home builders got destroyed by that because home builders have to buy land in advance. And they have their land, they have a lot of land. And so the ones that had a lot of land, a lot of debt, they ended up giving that land back to the sellers or to the banks. Um, and a lot of them you know, got pushed out of business. Uh, a lot of them had to restructure. And so you had the credit issue, you had the, the builder issue, a lot of builders got pushed out. And so we hit bottom, we hit a lower level of new construction that was much lower than uh, in the early 1990s when we had a pretty strong real estate related recession. We were way below that level. The recovery, we've looked at this the recovery from 2008, 2007 on was about the same slope as the recovery in the 90s, but from a much lower depth. And so we're still actually trying to get back to the level that we got eventually in 2007. We're still trying to roughly get back to that level because we started with a much deeper hole. We, the, the hole was much deeper. And so that was the second problem. And then the third problem is that zoning uh, for the reasons that I mentioned, constricts supply. And as houses went up in value due to lack of supply, home builders aren't able to build much. They have to all the way back up this slope. Um, and as they're doing that, uh, house prices get higher and higher. Then the Fed during the pandemic uh, really doubles and triples down and everything and house prices take off like they had never taken off before. We had house prices going up 18% year over year. Uh, on average, and in some places they're going up 30% year over year. Uh, and, and so the Fed was was promoting that through interest rates that were 2.75% on mortgages, which was unheard of. Uh, and, uh, and so there was just a huge demand for houses and the price of houses went up and the supply was constrained and the rest is, is history. So it's the combination of those three things. So that's where we are today. And the home builders, you know, notwithstanding where interest rates are, which are higher, um, they're actually still relatively low compared to what the home builders are used to. Uh, normal would be seven, eight, nine percent, and we're around seven. Uh, home builders have survived through eighteen percent back in the early eighties, um, and um, and so they're doing okay. They have a lot of tools in their arsenal to help uh, do that. Uh, but they can only build so much based on the land that's available. They ha still have to get the land uh, zoned and entitled to build. And that process is, takes longer and longer and longer. And that is a local process and a state process. Uh, again, the federal government has little role in that. Um, but uh, the uh, and places like the Southeast, which have huge in-migration that continues to this day, um, they used to be able to keep up with this, but because of all that in-migration, the demand in the Southeast and in Texas has gone up tremendously. So even there, they're, they're outstripping their capacity. And places like California and New York, they never had much capacity to build much. They are also running into problems because they never build very much in the first place. Uh, so that's where we find ourselves today. Yeah. I, I think that um, another thing that a lot of Americans don't understand is our unique mortgage um, industry. For example, um, in Canada and um, in Australia, um, mortgage rates reset pretty much every year. 
And here we have 30-year mortgages. Um, I think that's kind of unusual. And also your mortgage payments, the interest is deductible. So this also fosters home ownership, which is much higher here than in those countries, you know, for that reason. The, the real difference to some extent is that, A, yes, you're right, they have these reset mortgages, but they tend to be five years in most cases in Canada. I'm more familiar with Canada than Australia. Um, they tend to be five years. They do have 30-year mortgages, fully amortizing, full-term mortgages. Which are more expensive, probably. Which are more expensive, but they do have those at the five-year resets. Um, they have had massive house price appreciation in Canada and Australia, even more so than the United States. But their mortgages are generally safer, uh, particularly in the uh, the aught years than than we had. Um, and uh, the the uh, the thing that that we've noticed, and you mentioned Switzerland and Germany, if you look at the ten year treasury in whatever country you're talking about, the United States, the ten year treasury is I think uh, it's just around four percent, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at Germany, it's two percent, give or take. Which means that even if you got a 30-year mortgage, which you can get in Germany, um, uh, you would be paying roughly two percentage points less than the United States because the uh, the the instrument that 30-year mortgages are priced off of is the 10-year uh, uh, treasury in whatever country you're talking about. And we found that um, th- this is a really important point for Congress. Congress is always saying, the Fed, why don't you lower interest rates? Why don't you lower interest rates? Well, my answer is, Congress, why don't you look in the mirror and realize <laughs> that the deficits that you're creating? We found that when we plotted the amount of deficit as a percent of the um, GDP, we found that uh, there is a very strong correlation. The higher that percent, the higher the 10-year treasury in that country, starting with the United States, and the lower that percentage, the lower the 10-year treasury, with Germany being an example. The one exception, which the exception always makes the rules, is Japan. Japan I was going to say it's got to be Japan, <laughs> always. <laughs> Japan has been doing interest rate repression since the 1980s, and I don't know, and they have the highest debt to GDP in the world, I think. You know, how they continue that, I'm not familiar, I mean, I'm not an expert enough on that, but we always have to exclude Japan. In, in all things. It's a different planet in many ways, financially, yeah. Except in zoning. They actually have the right answer in zoning. Well, um, uh, and a more homogenous society. So going back to your original point about what created zoning, that that was not part of what they were trying to do. So um, you wrote recently about waivers and uh, appraisal waivers. Can you explain what's going on in that? And it, does that also relate to cash buyers, which are increasing, or what, what is going on in, the, in that? People who don't want mortgages, and are they waiving appraisals, or what's, what's the dynamic? Yeah, so what happened, appraisal waivers have been around for some time, but they were a relatively small percentage at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden, uh, appraisers couldn't go inside properties um, because of the pandemic. Um, they couldn't even get to the properties because of the pandemic. There was nobody to meet them there, uh, et cetera. So the Fannie and Freddie decided to use the data that they had, which they already had been doing some waivers um, in, in a minor, relatively minor way. Why don't we expand the use of waivers for, first of all, rate and term refinances where no cash is being taken out, second of all, for cash, and third of all, on purchase. So they did them 
at, at one point, I think nearly 70%, more or less, of the rate and term refinances were done with waivers. Of refis, it might have been 45 or 50%, and of purchases, it might have been 20%. Taken in the aggregate, it was a very large percentage of the business that was being done. Because again, during that pandemic period, interest rates were so low, refis were, were uh, there was a huge refi wave. Um, and so once they got a lot of experience with that, we've done a lot of studying around it. Um, we haven't found particular problems, but as always is the case with Fannie and Freddie, um, there's always the risk that either they will turn to the dark side, which they did with uh, automated underwriting back in the late 90s and the odd years, um, or someone will figure out a way to game them that they haven't been able to track, and that could lead to um, problems. Uh, so we keep on top of that to see if we're seeing any trends. Um, the waiver usage has dropped back tremendously. Um, we, we publish a report basically every month on it, and the numbers are, are quite a bit lower. They've introduced some new things. It's an alphabet soup. I can't even tell you what the alphabet soup is. Um, regarding cash sales, Cash sales um, have uh, a couple of purposes. Um, they're, if you're a, a buyer of lower end properties that need work and stuff, a lot of those properties transact with cash. Uh, somebody comes in and says, I'll give you $50,000 know, tomorrow. Um, and they don't take out a loan, they just pay for it in cash, whatever. Uh, that's one relatively small set of the market. Uh, there has become a larger, then there's just people who pay cash. Um, because they can, they sell their residence, they're buying another residence and they just pay cash. Um, but then there's a, a third group, which is, uh, I want to get a leg up on uh, my competition of buying a house. And if I can pay cash, I no longer have a financing contingency. I no longer need an appraisal. I no longer need necessarily need an inspection. And in a shortage, it's it's a tool. Yeah. And, and some realtors and real estate agents have come out with the equivalent of cash. How do we put make somebody who doesn't have the cash a cash buyer? You know, so there's all of that. So that is basically the market reacts to the conditions that the market is in. And if having cash gives you a leg up, then the people with cash will uh, take that leg up. And so that's been happening, uh, you know, more than it had been happening. Uh, I don't consider it a, a particularly negative part of the market. It's just the way the market operates. Okay. So because of these shortages, we have a lot of homelessness, and now we have the immigration issue. And in Chicago, there are homeless people on practically every street here. And how does that factor in? There's there's some new legislation that you've written about to make rentals less expensive. But maybe can you talk about, is that the right solution or the wrong solution and homelessness goes back to the 80s. Before that, I never saw it in this country. So homelessness actually goes back to the zoning issue. So I already mentioned about the single-family detached zoning, which stopped all the duplexes and, and small apartment buildings and townhouses in the same you know neighborhood. Um, well, there was a second series of things that happened under the zoning at the same time. Rooming houses were outlawed. When I was growing up, you drive down a street and there was a little sign, rooming house. If you watch It's a Wonderful Life, in where he was didn't exist, his mother was operating a rooming house. Uh, rooming houses were relatively common. They were a way for widows to make some money off of the house they were left. Um, that those, those were made illegal. Secondly, single room occupancy was made illegal. 
Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Chicago had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of single SROs, single room occupancy. Think of the YMCA. Every bus station, every train station in every city in the United States had a YMCA across the street. And when you were migrating up from wherever or down from wherever to get a, start a better life, you started at the YMCA for a room at a dollar a night or whatever it was. You, it, they had hot meals. You'd get a job. You'd eventually save a little bit of money. And you'd move into an apartment and you're off you went. That was the way it worked. That, those were all made illegal. Um, and that, uh, those were places where um, people who would become homeless could actually land. And I, the way I describe it is, not that you or I would want to live necessarily in one of those SROs, but if you look at living on the street as the alternative, call that zero. I would say the room, however bad the SRO is, it's, a, it's infinitely better than living on the street. And living in a mansion is not infinitely better than living in the SRO. They, they, you know, it's, it's at least right. It, it, the infinite jump I agree is with to that. the SRO. And yet all of those were made illegal. And, and New York City did the most pernicious thing. It not only made them illegal, it forced the people to sell them off to developers to turn them into high-end housing, always with the promise that, oh, and we're going to replace them. Well, they never got to replace them. The other thing that happened was that the mental hospitals were closed um, you know, largely, and so a lot of people didn't have a, an alternative in terms of institutionalization. Uh, but what we have found the biggest single factor, the the determining factor is the relationship between median house price in an area and its median income. Uh, we call that displacement pressure. The higher the displacement pressure, the higher the displacement rate. The displacement rate is the homeless rate per thousand population. That's the displacement rate. And so the only way you can explain that Los Angeles has 11 times on a per capita basis, the displacement rate of Houston is that Houston allows housing to be built abundantly and LA doesn't. That's the explanation. And it it isn't that Houston necessarily, they don't subsidize you know low-end rental housing. They just allow lots of housing to be built and having lots of housing ends up with it's a game of musical chairs. Um, if you have 110 people and only have 100 chairs, 10 people aren't going to get a chair. But if you have 95 people and there are you know, 100 chairs and five of them end up vacant, which is what you would normally have in a working uh, uh, market, everybody gets a chair. Now, they're not all the same quality, but everybody gets a chair. And so what happens in places like Los Angeles uh, and I have a, a really good friend uh, is with the Salvation Army, and he describes it this way. Um, I, 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 I'm not certain how with my grammar sometimes. And so when I hear the term NIMBY, they always want to put a period after not in my backyard, period. He says, I, somehow I think that should be comma. I'm not certain, but I think it should be comma because I think what the rest of the sentence is, not in my backyard, comma, but homeless everywhere around me, as you just said, Larry. Or I've added, not in my backyard, comma, or my children and grandchildren living in my basement. I just read a, a stat 
that um, came out from uh, uh, the Census Bureau that in uh, uh, various metros in California, I think it was 40% or 35% of the individuals aged 25 to 41 were living with their parents. You go to other places, it's 8%. Well, why is it that high in California? It's because of their policies not allowing housing to be built. I also think it means not in my backyard, comma, my children and grandchildren living a thousand miles away because California has had three and a half million people out like rape. Exodus. Oh, really? They've had an exodus because of this. Yeah, right? an exodus, even though its population is virtually unchanged from its peak, it's down a little bit, but after losing three and a half million people over the net over the last 30 years, um, they, they, they still have a shortage of housing. And those people, by and large, move to the the uh, north to Oregon and Washington state and east all the way east roughly to Austin all the way up to North Dakota and so what you're saying is to solve this problem government just has to get out of the way Ed, right get out of the way government so we have a three three step process step 1 by right light touch density what's by right no discretion on the part of the administrators, if you, you know, they set the rules, if you comply with the rules, you get the permit. And so you can build, you know, by right. Second, that's the way it used to be before the 1920s. Secondly, um, uh, light touch density. Light touch density is housing that is compatible in size and scale to single family houses. Now, single family houses could be 1,500 square feet or they'd be 4,000 square feet. But a 4,000 square foot house could be 4,000, 1,000 square foot townhouses on the same lot. Um, and so we think that's, you know, light touch density. Secondly, you have to follow the KISS rule, which is keep it simple, stupid. I learned that in my first job in 1975. Um, the regulations have to be understandable by normal people. Why? Because the third thing that happens is if you have by right light touch density with the keep it simple stupid rule for the regulations, you will unleash a swarm of small builders, small developers, small property owners, wage wage earners, uh, small banks, you name it, small uh, suppliers all across the spectrum. We have studied um, Seattle, Houston, Los Angeles, Palisades Park, uh, Philadelphia, and we found the exact same thing in all places. If you follow the keep it simple stupid rule, and if you have buy right light touch density, you will get this unleashing the swarm. So what happened in LA? LA, the, the state government, after 30 years of trying to make it easy to build accessory dwelling units, finally succeeded. LA finally succeeded in 2017 after 30 years. And there has been an explosion of ADUs, not other types of housing particularly, but ADUs. And we know that those ADUs are built by tens of thousands of small builders and remodelers. They are not built by large entities. Well, you know, you sent me a wonderful histogram of Illinois, and it shows what the effect might be of a light touch density housing. And it's here it says, if this were to be adopted, you'd have 36,000 new homes, right? Uh, housing 91,000 residents. And this, it, it generally, per year, and that helps... And when you look at who it helps most, it's lower and middle income residents. So it seems like this is a policy people should should look at. We're pushing that. We've developed that histogram, the infographic. Uh, we're pushing that out across the country. Um, 
We just had an op-ed slash uh, infographic in the Sarasota newspaper with uh, a lot of the same material. Um, and we're try- we're talking to people all over the country about this. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, as we speak, and talking to people there. Uh, we we our forte at the housing center is we start with data, and we have more data on the housing market than anyone else in the country, I believe. And we take that data, we turn it into information. Data is just data. You have to get it to information, but then we have to take the information and turn it into knowledge. And then we have to take the knowledge and turn that into policy. And so we've done that. We said, okay, we have all the data. We've figured out, you know, where stuff is getting built. We now know where the places that are feasible to uh, convert to um, uh, light touch density, X number of units by lot by lot. And if you don't, you're going to get um, uh, McMansionization, McMansions. Uh, we know that because we track all the McMansions that are built around the country, property by property. And that leads us to that three-part policy. Um, uh, buy right, light touch density combined with keep it simple, stupid will unleash the swarm. At every case we've studied, if you follow those two principles, you will unleash the swarm. You know, I can't help but asking you, at the same time we have, you know, a shortage of housing, we have um, a problem with commercial real estate in this country. And I remember on one of your calls, I asked you the question, why not just convert? And especially today, people are bringing this up a lot here in the city because of the number of immigrants that need housing. Why not convert commercial real estate to housing? And you gave, you explained it to me. I, I hope you could share that with everybody because I didn't understand the underlying issues. Right. Uh, and so before I get to that, to answer your other question about uh, federal uh, proposals for helping in terms of renters, uh, there's uh, the, the, the basic program that we have in the United States is called the uh, Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which basically funds, uh, uh, provides a credit for housing that's for low income people below about 60% of area median income. Uh, it's very expensive. It has subsidy on top of subsidy on top of subsidy just for the development cost. And then the little dirty little secret is 50% of the people living in these subsidized places then require monthly rent supplements in order to afford to live there. These are not inexpensive places. They're places made affordable by massive, massive subsidies. Um, and they crowd out. Uh, they don't actually add to supply. They crowd out other housing that would get built if that program weren't there. So Congress is now on a bipartisan basis talking, they just, they're talking about expanding the low-income housing tax credit program. They're now talking about adding a second program that comes, goes under two names, the middle-income housing tax credit and the workforce housing tax credit, both of the same thing. And they would increase the income uh, limit uh, uh, maximum from around about 60 to 80 percent, um, excuse me, to 100 percent. And so uh, about 90% of the people have, that are renters have incomes below that. So they'd basically be um, offering a program that virtually everyone would call, qualify for. It would have all kinds of in- negative incentives, uh, including why don't I split up with somebody so we each get a unit um, and all kinds of things. Uh, and uh, again, it would crowd out you know, market development uh, and it would cost a fortune. Um, which again, our answer is just we can't afford. afford. (laughs) We can't afford that. Congress from spending more money. Do you think they'll pass it or not? I think it will pass. Why? 
because the money is doled out per capita state by state by state. So every senator and every congressman gets their share, whether they're- It's a trough. It's a trough. A giant trough. Whether, mm-hmm. it, 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 whether it's an expensive state or an inexpensive state, everyone, they, the, the small states get a little bit more, but other than a few small states, everybody gets the same per capita amount. And so they all have an interest in, in voting for it, bringing home the bacon. So your other question about the uh, commercial. So the reality is office buildings, by definition, don't have very many tall office buildings, don't have very many window space. The corner office is rare. The window office is also relatively rare. Most of the spaces are interior. They're not on windows. That's by design. That's the cheapest way to make an office building. So that's called the floor plate. The floor plate has a couple of bathrooms and a lot of interior offices and a few offices around the exterior. Well, that's not the way housing works. Housing, you need windows, uh, except usually in the kitchen, sometimes the bathroom, but the bedrooms and the living room and the dining room need windows. Well, you can't get enough windows. So you end up having to hollow out the center of the building if it's a large plate to create an air shaft that uh, basically would allow for windows. Think of hotels. Hotels need windows. You can't have a hotel room without some windows. And so that's why hotels have these center things that, you know, look out on like an atrium atrium or just looking out on the first floor. That's to provide light into the hotel rooms. Well, office buildings don't have any requirement like that. Um, And so to retrofit is incredibly expensive. I I think um, I forget the group that did it. Um, they, They did a study and found that if you converted all of the vacant office space in the top 10 cities in the world, you would add something like one or 2% to the housing supply. It's not an answer because it's so expensive to convert. It's, uh, uh, and by the way, um, back to the tax revenue, office buildings generate a lot more tax revenue per square foot than uh, a residential structure in general. Why? Well, uh, commercial space rents for more, but also when you rent commercial space, you have, you're paying per square foot for every square foot of that building, including the lobby, your share of the lobby, your share of the elevator shaft, your share of everything. The basement is all part of your square footage lease. When you rent an apartment, you're just paying rent on your apartment, the, the, what's in your apartment. And so the, when they need to convert, even if the building's only 50% full, it may still be generating more cash flow than it would if it were a rental. And remember, to get it to be a rental, you have to put in tons of money. So there are lots of issues. So what are your forecasts, given all of these these issues that we have, and, and uh, uh, where are we going? What is your forecast for what will happen with housing supply, you know, with, inter- with uh, mortgage rates? What's the future five or 10 years from now? So um, I, I have... Um, following, uh, uh, I think it was his name, uh, never make predictions, particularly about the future. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I don't forecast interest rates particularly um, because right. I have no idea what they're going to be. The Fed clearly has no idea. So if the Fed has no idea, how would I have an idea? Their dot plots are never right. Um, so so uh, all I can say is where are they today? And where they are today is around 7%. And at 7%, what's that going to do, given the current supply for house price appreciation? And we've said, 
house price appreciation at the end of 2024 is going to be around 5%. Uh, we're actually coming in a little hot. Um, we'll be releasing our January number in a few days, but I've already seen it and it's coming in hot, meaning higher than we might expect because interest rates dropped um, in uh, November, December, and that led to higher prices. Uh, when we say January, those are houses that closed in January, but those houses got negotiated in November. Uh, that's when the sales agreement was entered into. They, it takes 45 to 50 days to close. Um, so we expect that that, and that's, we expect that's going to continue unless there's some untoward event, which is a major recession or some international event that could also have ramifications on a recession. Um, but that we expect uh, house price appreciation to continue in the 5% range for the foreseeable future, years out. Um, and that's higher than inflation and higher than construction costs. And therefore, it's going to continue putting pressure. Um, that's number one. Number two, uh, we think um, new construction will actually be reasonably healthy. Uh, it's it's going to be impacted some by these you know, interest rates bouncing around. But uh, as we said, we were on a path, an upward path that we've been in on since 2010 or so. Um, and that we expect to you know, continue with some ups and downs, but it generally continue because we're still in that expansion phase. And that's all good. Uh, we, we think the answer is, and we say we have the, uh, the, the tailwind at our backs, um, which is uh, light touch sensing and zoning reform. So last year, um, the uh, Washington state passed a, a broad statewide uh, zoning reform that's pretty good. Not perfect, but pretty good. Montana passed a lot of reforms that were excellent. Why Montana? Because Montana didn't want to become California. And Montana, if you're a small state and you're in the blast zone from California of people exiting, bringing bags of money from California and high incomes through work from home, that's going to impact Montana big time. And that's what's been happening, as, in, as is Idaho is another one. So Montana is another one. Vermont also passed um, a pretty good law. Uh, those were after states like California and uh, Oregon and um, Maine and one other state that escapes me at the moment had also passed. So in the last four or five years, there have been five or six, six or seven states that have passed laws. Many there have been many small you know, communities, uh, Austin, Texas, Charlotte, North Carolina, and many others that have passed uh, local ordinances. Uh, th but they, as we know from California, they take in many cases a long time to actually have an impact. Uh, because they don't follow the keep it simple, stupid rule. That's what allowed Palisades Park to do what it did. It was a very simple thing uh, in terms of. And I know, yeah, Vermont is having an influx of people moving. Yes. There. I think it's the fastest of any state, and it's a tiny little state. Tiny little people. state. It doesn't take a lot of in, in, incoming to have a big impact. That's what happened to Idaho. Uh, it also happened to Nevada. Nevada has the longest border with California, uh, it was the smallest in population of its neighbors. It may not be anymore, but at the time, and I think something like 50% of all the people that live in Nevada used to live in California. Um, and, you know, so they're migrants out of California, and that's really uh, affected Reno and Las Vegas, along with the rest of the state. So we think the answer is light touch sensitivity. It, there is no silver bullet that says this will solve the problem in two years. It took literally 100 years to create this problem. We do think, based on our research, that if light touch sensitivity were available throughout the United States um, in, in core areas where um, the, the, it would work economically, 
uh, which you can tell where those are. It's Washington State, Oregon, California, Idaho, you name it, Nevada, Arizona, New York. I mean, those are Florida. Those are the places that have high land shares um, and high prices relative incomes. If it were done in those places, you'd see an immediate uh, impact uh, year by year. And we think in five or six years, the, that impact would eliminate uh, largely the housing supply uh, crunch we have. It would reduce homelessness to a level that we would consider you know, not necessarily acceptable, but at least we can deal with. Uh, they're not dealing with it in San Francisco and in Oregon and in LA at all. Um, uh, or in probably in, in Chicago and New York. And so we think that would happen, um, but that would take, again, we think there's no federal, particular federal role here um, because this is outside the federal government's purview under the 10th Amendment and the, and the division of, of uh, powers. Um, and so we think that um, the states have to do this, the localities have to do this, and they are stepping up. Uh, today, we don't know exactly how many, but you know, the legislatures meet more or less every year. Sometimes it's every other year. Um, but there's probably 15 states that are considering light touch density type legislation. It also goes under another name, missing middle or middle housing. Um, and uh, there are hundreds, I guess. And we, again, we don't know where they all are because uh, we don't, we're not plugged into all of them, but there are probably hundreds of localities that are considering ordinances. Uh, and this is a huge change from where things were as recently as five years ago. Let me just add, a lot of people may be familiar with Minneapolis. So Minneapolis sort of was the first one to actually do something and the headlines were Minneapolis outlaws, you know, uh, single family detached. Well, first of all, it didn't do that. All it did was legalize what used to be legal, then was made illegal, which is duplexes and triplexes. It didn't outlaw anything. It just allowed duplexes and triplexes in addition to um, single family detached. But they didn't follow the keep it simple, stupid rule. Uh, they have not to get into too much inside baseball, but there are lots of rules. And one of the rules has to do with what's known as the floor area ratio between the floor area of the structure and the land, the lot area, square footage. And that floor area ratio was left uh, too low. It was uh, unchanged from when it was a single family detached. And so it isn't economically viable to build um, the, a duplex or a triplex, so they didn't get any, hardly. And then people say that's a failure, but you see, developers didn't want to really do this. Well, again, if you put these poison pills in place, either on purpose or inadvertently, the mar and the market can't economically build the housing, it won't. They won't, yeah. So last question, and I would be remiss, speaking of California as well, my sister spent her career as a mortgage banker, in California, and she asked me to ask you, um, what about these insurance home insurance costs? I think she and her neighbors have been refused by four or five different insurers, and I understand the situation is the same in Florida. She feels that this is going to be, have a huge impact on affordability of housing, of buying a home, and also on rental costs because the landlords face the same issue, and they'll have to pass that along to their to their renters. I, I live in uh, Florida. I, I'm aware of this going back to, uh, this started in Florida with uh, Hurricane Andrew. Hurricanes, right. Mm -hmm. Hurricane Andrew, 1991. And, or, yeah, I guess it was 1991, I think, or 92. A big year for housing. <laughs> yeah, a big year. Uh, but, but Andrew. So what happened, Florida used to have a very robust insurance industry. 
And when Andrew came through uh, and hit Miami, but particularly hit Homestead, south of Miami, which was a lower income area, south of Miami, Dade, uh, might be Dade County, but south of Miami. And um, my son and I in 1993 uh, were driving through Homestead. And this is why there was a hue and cry in the newspaper saying the insurers are raping and pillaging. They're not paying claims. And we drive through Homestead, which, as I said, was a lower income area, uh, modest houses. And every house we drove by on the uh, interstate, I can still visualize it, either had the roof removed. In most cases, it was been blown off or had a new tile roof, clay tile roof. Or, and if the roof had been removed, had the clay tile sitting in the driveway in, in pallets. And I'm going, how in the world, I can't, I, when I replaced my roof, I didn't replace it with tile because it was too expensive. I paid for asphalt shingles. How in the world is everyone able to afford a tile roof if the insurers are raping and pillaging? They can't possibly be raping and pillaging. Um, they're being very generous to allow uh, tile roofs. And, um, and so that really gave me a different perspective. And I've been following the insurance industry in Florida ever since. And what happened is um, there, the, um, the plaintiff's lobby, which had tremendous control in Florida and, and in California, uh, you know, loves to sue. And eventually, you know, they come up with the, the scam in Florida that kind of really got everyone's attention it was two years ago or so. Uh, it had been going on for a couple of years. The scam was um, they'd send the, these law firms would would send uh, 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 companies around roofing companies and they'd find a roof that was just before its warranty was expiring. And then they'd say your roof is defective and you need a new roof. And then the attorney would get involved and the the law, the um, the insurance companies were massive claims. I can't remember the exact numbers, but Florida, you know, had 80% of the claims like this in the country were in Florida. And, and so the legislature struggled for years trying to solve this. They passed some legislation a year or so ago. They passed some more. Um, this requires the legislature to have a more even hand. Because what had happened in Florida was what started out as a very robust home insurance industry with all the household names, you know, Allstate, State Farm, you name them, were all here. They were all cheap. They're gone, though, They're now, right? long gone. They were replaced by another group. which And then the government provides a government version. Citizens is the one in Florida. It might have a different name now, but, you know, uh, and then... The next group leaves, the next group leaves. And so the legislature has to make it so that insurance companies actually can operate and that they can't have these scams and stuff. So what happened in California, uh, they basically said that you couldn't raise the rates, even though the expenses were going up. And the Public Service Commission, whatever it was in Cal called in California, basically said this. And they finally had to do a 180 degree turn um, about three to four or five months ago, I don't remember exactly when, to allow um, these insurance companies to actually start passing through some of their costs. And, um, and eventually the market, as we find, will equilibrate. Eventually insurance will become, you know, not going to be cheap, but, you know, more affordable. But the, but the government has to be part of the solution. It can't be constantly saying, you know, so let me give you an example back to the housing supply issue. Uh, in much of the country, condos, even in Palisades Park, uh, those townhouses that I talked about, or excuse me, those duplexes side by side are done as a condo. 
you don't split the lot in two and then build a zero lot line semi-detached. You actually build on the one lot, two units, each has their half right on the line, and you, you have a condo wrapped around that that's a very small little condo thing. doesn't cost much, but it's a lot cheaper than doing a lot split. You can't do that in California. Any condo done in California is a target for a lawsuit. Even this little condo with the, you know that I just described. So they can't even do that. Well, that's an efficient way. So they have to go to a lot split. And a lot split in California is very expensive. There's a lot of bureaucracy involved. So California at every turn has the opposite of keep it simple, stupid. It has these um, you know, uh, roadblocks that they put in place, poison pills. And this condo one is just one example. They've made it so any condo is a litigation magnet. Um, and you can't operate the free market if you make things that are just normal litigation magnets. So basically, you're saying the litigators and the legislatures have to get out of the way and stop interfering. Well, the, the, the legislature has to get the litigators out of the way, get back to a level playing field. Um, you know, again, insurance has to be based on costs. Uh, you can't have them made by a fictional numbers that you know some uh, public service commission comes up with. They have to be based on cost. You you have you you can't allow um, the you know the brush to accumulate in these forests. Um, and you have to have like you know what happened in Hawaii. Nobody was responsible, and this is all public land for the most part. Nobody was responsible for clearing the brush, and so you had that huge wildfire um, in uh, in Hawaii. Well, that was almost all public land. Well, who is, who's me? You were supposed to be clearing that brush. Why did you let that brush accumulate? Around those multi-million dollar homes, too. Well, in the that case they were probably Lahaina, it was the only reason they were expensive is because of the land. The homes themselves were quite modest. Uh, there were some new, but most of them were the, the historic part of Lahaina was, was very modest homes. Uh, but the land was worth a lot, relatively speaking. Um, but, um, the, the brush was in the hills up above and the hills were largely owned, not all of it, but largely owned by uh, the municipalities, the state, you know, other governmental entities. Wow. Well, today, I think I've learned a lot about this really complex intertwined industry. That's the housing industry in the United States. I really understand it much better now, you know, going back a hundred years, and seeing what the roots of it are. Thank you, Ed, so much for joining me. Thank you, Laura. Always a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. And how can our listeners find more about the uh, the housing center, all of the things that you do? How can they follow you, Ed? So uh, they can go to, you know, just Google AI Housing Center. That will pick, uh, send them to our, our uh, website. We have two toolkits, one called the Heat Toolkit, Housing and Economic Analysis Toolkit. So if you just type in AEI Toolkit or AEI Heat, that'll take you there. If you're interested in homeless, uh, we have our Good Neighbor Toolkit. Um, and that's, again, AEI Good Neighbor. Uh, and that'll take you right to that toolkit. Uh, you can also get to those toolkits directly from uh, our main website for the Housing Center. But we, we've got, and all the information on there is free. Um, it, it's there for the asking um, and if any uh, municipalities or state officials are interested, we respond to those you know, types of questions. You know, every day we're getting more and more inquiries and, and we're responding to them. 
Thank you so much, Ed Pinto, and to also to all the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, especially our producer, Sam Fu. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, econview.com. Don't miss our new China report, and if you can, support us on Substack. 